Hey everyone, it's Rebecca Wilson. So today on the show, we have Sean Quackenbush. He's been Brandy Carlisle's front of house engineer for over eight years, but he's also toured and mixed Robert Randolph, KT Tungstall, and been front of house for a myriad of shows at venues ranging from arenas to Wrigley Field. We also talked about his recent mind-blowing show, mixing Joni Mitchell's return to the stage at the Newport Folk Festival, which left not a dry eye in the crowd. But what I love most about talking with Sean is his humility and pragmatic, no-nonsense way. It's no wonder that artists keep him around for decades at a time. Sean logged in from his home studio in Portland, Oregon. All right. Hey, how's it going, Sean? Good. How are you? I'm I'm actually having a strange morning. It's been a lot of tech issues, but hopefully those are done with. As you know, a bad sound check is a good show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually even a little bit more. I'm very superstitious. Like I'm like at the end of sound check, like, oh, it's I'm like, don't, don't talk to me. Let's get through the show and then we can talk about if it was a good show or a bad show. That's right. And I knock on wood constantly. Yeah. So I don't want to waste any time because you have a breadth and depth of experience, unlike many of our guests. I mean, 30 years. Is it 30? 27 something? It's coming up on 30. I guess 95 technically is really professional. Like I had done stuff up to that. Like I did a couple like tours with some high school kids in the summer, like van and stuff like that. But I worked for the sound company that I started with starting at 12, 13. Yeah. So that was my first question. I I heard on another interview, you said that Michael Jackson lit the fire for you. You went and saw Michael Jackson. I did. 84 Buffalo Bills Stadium. (laughs) We were fourth row center and I sat on my aunt's shoulders for the whole show. And it was like nothing you'd ever seen before. And my parents were super cool. They took us to all kinds of events. I saw really the great stuff in the 80s they took us to. And or dad taking you to, it could be the globe trotters, or, you know, even when you're a kid, the Muppets on roller skates or whatever it oh was. Oh my God, I know. It's amplified sound. Yeah, all sorts of live events and stuff like that. But yeah, it's like, I remember waiting in line. I had to go to Ticketron at the mall and wait in line. And we were there and we got tickets to see, it was the Jackson's Victory Tour, which I think at the time was the biggest tour that had ever gone out. So it was... It was massive. It was a third of the stadium, the stage. And it was just so impressive on how big it was. You were like, it moves. Uh, You know, it moves every couple of days. And that was the impressive part. But no, mom and dad, and, you know, I I come from a big Irish family. So I had lots of really cool aunts and uncles and stuff like that. So, like, we saw Huey Lewis in the news on the sports tour. I saw Rick Springfield do Jesse's Girl. You know, all the kind of the great shows we went to. So you started doing in high school too. You kind of got into audio and lights. Yeah, kind of like that kind of middle school, sixth grade kind of thing. Like, you know, you sneak into the theater and you figure out how the lighting board works or how the sound system works. But if you're tech-minded as a child, you're stacking old receivers. Because, you know, you, you talk late 80s into the 90s, like everything was coming smaller and more compact. So like all your family members, old stereos and stuff, or you'd go to garage sales and buy bits and pieces and just put it all together. And half of it you destroyed and half of it, you, you know, you made work. And I had an uncle who was a mobile DJ as well. And I thought that was really cool. So him being older, he would take myself and my cousin, cause we were kind of younger and knew the 
current music more so than he did. So, and it kind of went from there. And at one point, my cousin and I, I think he was in seventh grade. I was in eighth grade. I'm like, we could do this and, you know, make a couple hundred bucks doing school dances and all that. We had the whole mobile lighting system. And, and then when you got done, instead of like now where you're like, okay, show's over, put it in the truck. I don't want to think about it for a while. We'd bring it home and set it all back up again in the, in the garage <laughs> or whatnot and just keep playing with it, you know? Kids in the neighborhood loved your house, I bet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so when was your first kind of parlay into the professional audio realm and what did that look like? I went to a performing arts high school program. I think it was my junior, senior year. And I was still in my regular public school, but I guess it was called an internship program, but you went to school there. I never stepped foot in my regular high school except to graduate, but I would go to this professional theater situation and they treated us like professional students. So, you know, I wound up doing audio and lighting and working in the scene shop and, you know, just production from that end. And it was... Not that I was like a massive musical theater fan or even, you know, dramatic theater fan. It was just, it was the technical stuff. So I did the plays and stuff in middle school and high school, you know, with the drama club. And I did all your battle of the bands. And I was the kid pushing the TV cart from classroom to classroom. Yeah, Yeah, I was. Yeah, exactly. So the sound company, which eventually I went on to be partners in, one of the uh, original partners of it went to the same high school that I went to. So they their company would come back and do the audio for the the musicals. So I got to know him and I just started working with him. The, the nice part was is the the shop was around the corner from my mom and dad's house. So I could ride my bike there and and it it all leads to where you get to eventually. So how did you get on your first tour? And also, what was that sound company? I mean, was that something that you held on to for a while or? Well, I mean, I'm actually, I mean, to this day, I still work with them all the time. It was originally called Omnitech and it was based in Albany, New York, and then moved up to Saratoga Springs. And their big client was the Performing Arts Center, which is SPAC, the Saratoga Arts Center. Yeah, everybody plays there. It's such yeah, a cool 25,000 seat. It's my favorite venue in the world. And, uh, Still, to this day, Matt, Eli, and and, uh, Tiffany, Eli, our family, you know, Matt was the person who went to my high school 10 years before me and then helped start the company. And then eventually Matt and I and a few of us kind of took over the company. And I don't know how I felt about being a business owner. I always wanted to be, you know, an audio person more so than than a bit. And that was a big part of it. So I started working there beginning of high school took care of a lot of clients, did a lot of theater stuff. And then eventually was one of the main, I was one of the leads at SPAC. So I would just, you know, I think 18 years old, you know. That's an incredible gig to have at 18. And such. so you must, did you feel stress at that age or was it just more like a youthful excitement? There was a lot of, I can do it, even though I probably had no business doing it, you know. (laughs) Me too, yeah. You learn to do monitors, you, you know, I mean, the big rock shows, let's say, or mainstream music shows, you're literally just looking after the delay system. But it's a great school because I got to see all the great bands play and I got to talk to all the great live engineers and just the great ones were great and they'd sit there and talk to you. And to this day, they, you know, hey, remember, you know, I'd come in and just, here's the lawn feed, walk the lawn. But if, you know, they'd sit and talk to you, it's like, oh, you do this. And 
I got to know a lot of people there who are really lifelong friends now, you know, and people have gone on to just be colleagues and toured with over the years. Yeah, it's a small community. I also learned by asking questions. So you've worked with so many people. Who was kind of the first major artist that you worked with? Was it Robert Randolph or? Well, I mean, Robert was really the first time big like tour tour. Like I would do regional stuff. This band's coming to the Northeast. You're going to go do monitors for XYZ or they'd come through SPAC and then you'd wind up doing 10 dates around the Northeast. And, you know, I did the van thing. Mm -hmm. But Robert was like the first mainstream really taken off at that time. So around like the beginning of 2000. And that was funny because they just showed up at a festival. And at the end of the, the festival, they were like, you want the gig? And I was like, and by that point, we ran a bunch of different venues and everybody was coming through on their way up. They're like, hey, when we get it, you're with us. After a while, you just kind of, you get numb to it. You're like, all right, yeah, here's my number. Call me when it's time to go. And you'd watch. Someone else get it. <laughs> yeah, and just all of a sudden, it, they just become huge. And you're like, all right, but I got a good thing going here. You know, I own this company and we were very diverse. We did broadcast work. We did live work. We did theater work. We did recording work. But you do get a little bit contempt. Is, is, that, is that a good way to say it? You know, just like, okay. Seasoned. Yeah, it's, it's Groundhog Day. Yeah. This is what we're going to do this year, <laughs> you know. And yeah, Robert was the big, like, and I was only supposed to do six weeks and it lasted 15 years. Yeah, I had a gig like that too. It's like the least under the cover is usually what we're expecting is usually what pans out to be sweet. Yeah. Life is funny that way. I love it. So when you went out with him, you were front of house for him. So originally I was going to do monitors and production manage. But I've told the story on a couple other podcasts, if you want to check it out, about the front of house engineer having some legal troubles. And I got the phone call and got hired to do front of house and I had to look after the drums, which was fine because I loved drums and teching the drums and patching the stage was like my moment of Zen during the day. You, you love know? that? Oh my God. Drums terrify me. Trying to tune a drum is terrifies me, but that's great. You have Zen about it. <laughs> but it was great because an engineer said to me, it was like, oh, the front of house engineers tuning the drums. It's brilliant because I'm tuning them for what I need in the PA. So you don't have to have the back and forth like I don't have to argue with somebody going the cut isn't there so I just I tuned it to what I needed in the house and you know my drum sounds were they were pretty good you know so I always got compliments on it so yeah how about his guitar I mean was there any lessons that you learned mixing guitar oh that thing him? Uh, pedal steel yeah it's like tuning a like five guitars at once on LSD you know <laughs> I mean, you got to remember one thing about the pedal steel is it's the only instrument you use both hands, both feet, and both knees in order to play it. And it moves. The strings all pitch up and pitch down. Every one is completely different. So it's not like... I still have the tuning charts in the other room from it the other day. And we're still friends to this day. But it, that thing was crazy. I mean, I learned enough on it that him and I could go out and do things on it. But most of the time, I just put the legs on it, put it in front of him. I go, hey, get this where you need it. And I'll put it on stage. Yeah, yeah. It's daunting. But man, they can rip through a PA. I mean, it sounds so great. Uh, at one point, we had a, a bay on the bus that just, he was shredding speakers and guitar cabinets. <laughs> he, he got a like a POG, which is like an octave pedal. 
And you got to remember the low string on a, a on his pedal steel is almost like a bass string, plus an octave pedal. It was like sixteen blown twelve inch speakers, like five hundred watt speakers in the bay of the bus, just because he'd make it halfway through a show, hit one node, bang, they just go on. So I got I got really good at fixing stuff like that, swapping out speakers. That's great. So after him. I mean, was it Brandy or was there people in between when he was off? And Yeah, a lot of people in between. I wound up doing um, the North Mississippi All-Stars a bunch. It, it was a lot in the jam band community because once you got in there, you kind of were in there. So I would do North Miss when I wasn't with him. I would do Soul Live. I would do Lettuce. I would do The Word when that got together, which was Robert with Medeski and the, the All-Stars. A lot of different things like that. And then some of that New York City, um, early 2000s rock and roll scenes, that scene that kind of developed around like the Strokes and bands like Longwave and all that. And I'd help out on stuff like that. And then with the management company at Red Light, they would send me out with some other people, Army of Me and just different bands. I became for a while like the showcase engineer. Oh, we're going to showcase this band. And I would fly in. So... I did a lot of that stuff, but Robert occupied a lot of my time. I was full-time for a long time. And then also I would do the Experience Hendrix tour twice a year. I was the front of house engineer on that. Which is a really unbelievable gig for a sound person. I mean, that it just seems like so much work, but also so much talent. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you garnered from working with all those people, all different nights, all different venues, right? All different times. Your ears definitely, when you got done, it was usually like a five or six week run and you, your ears would definitely need a, ra- a break because it was, it could be up to 17 guitar players in yeah. one night, all with 100 watt Marshall stacks, all pointed <laughs> at you, you know. But I mean, the people who I saw go through that camp, you know, Eric Johnson, we had Satriani, we had Steve Vai, we had Double Trouble, we had Hublet Sumner, we had, I mean, just the, the Ernie Isley from the Isley Brothers, you know. The big one for me was uh, Living Color. Oh, yeah. We had the whole band out there. And that's one of those bands that kind of blew my mind apart. It's funny enough, we did SNL a year ago with Brandy. And we were all standing on the stage. And I think it was like the last major TV show I hadn't done yet. And we were all talking about the musical performance that blew our minds. And, and the three for me were LL Cool J, Fishbone, and Living Collar. That was my first tour. Was I worked for Fishbone for a few years. Oh. <laughs> Still one of my favorite <laughs> bands to this day. To just the best. And uh, it was a long day. You loaded in at 7 o'clock in the morning and they rehearsed. I mean, the last day of the tour... We were still rehearsing, but it was so full of people who love music is you would load in at seven, usually somewhere around 11 or noon, musicians would start and they would rehearse up to dinner. Then you do the show that's three hours long. It could be anything. We had guitar players, we had bass players. We had just, it was just musical. We'd get on the bus at the end of the night after loading out and watch more music. Hey, anybody want to watch Hendrix live at Woodstock now? And it was, it was a lot of fun. A lot of the music I love to this day came from a lot of the people I toured with on that. Just some of the road crew guys just turning me on to things that I wasn't aware of, but eh, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, you get to hear Hendrix every night, which awesome. Can never be bad. Yeah. I mean, it's intense, but yeah. Yeah. So when, at what point did you work for Katie Tungstall? Well, I took a break from Robert for a year and I decided to go to the other end of the multi-core in 2013, and I had been friends with the OAR guys for a long time, and they said, hey, you want to come out and do monitors? So um, 
I went out and I did monitors on that for a year and had a good time doing it, but realized how much I love doing front of house. So sure, sure. Most front of house people don't. Yeah, I think it's one or the other. Well, it's just the artistic and creative side where, you know, the stuff you need to do where monitors is it's somebody telling you how they exactly want it to be. You can be completely creative and artistic and monitors. And there's a lot of engineers who are amazing at it. I just was kind of like, let me do what they want because I replaced their longtime monitor engineer who went to front of house. So it was a good time and it was a good way to kind of set where you are in your life and your career goals. So it was really good. Went back to Robert for just about a year after that. And it was fun, but I was kind of in a point in my life. It was like I had gotten married. We were starting to have a family. We bought a house. Funny enough, we went and played uh, Daryl Hall's club in Pauling, New York. Three minutes into the first song, the production manager at the club who had just stopped touring as John and Daryl's production manager goes, hey, you want to mix Hall and Oates? And I go, yes. So I did that for almost a year, kind of on and off. But the thing was, is I had agreed to do KT Tungstall in the fall. This was her first tour. She hadn't toured in a bit. and She was going to go out and do this solo run. And actually, the funniest, a big part of my career that we missed is I kind of have this team of friends and we produce all these kind of ski mountain events. There's three or four of us. So we do these all-star things up in, we've done Sundance, we've done Vail, we've done Aspen, and we put these kind of big events together, Okemo for like ski mountains. So you're actually producing the event and booking bands and doing all or I would do PM and audio and I'd always wind up being in the front of house. But you know, some of the killerest all-star bands, you know, Stefan from Dave Matthews and Ed from Bare Naked Ladies and Dee Snyder and Warren D. Martini from Rat and Mike McCready from Pearl Jam and just these different all-star bands we would put together. And then it turned into us just uh, producing a concert series for Sundance at the Montage in Deer Valley, Utah for one to two weeks every year during Sundance. It was just a lot of fun. And I would bring down all my toys from the house. And we had KT Tungstall there. And um, she brought her engineer over from the UK. And we got to know her. And she was just the greatest person in the world. And um, her agent, who was helping her out, is a really dear friend of mine, has helped me further my career a lot, said, hey, uh, KT's going out in the fall. She's going to do a solo run. Do you want to go out and do front of house for her? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know? And we just had the best time. It's so much fun. I mean, the show is 50% great music and 50% stand-up comedy. And it's like 24 inputs just for her and acoustic guitar because you have loops and different samples and sounds and stuff like that. But it's you can make it sound massive. And we went out and did this run and um, she kind of trusted me enough that I kind of helped put the crew together. So I brought a, a guitar tech with me that had worked on Robert. And I brought a tour manager who had done OAR with us. And we just, we had the best time. So it was like the five of us. So the Hall and Oates thing lined up because I was like, hey, I got to go do this. So that's, I had agreed to the KT tour almost like a year in advance. And I was really excited about it. I thought it was going to be a lot of fun. So, you know, I wasn't really as great as the John and Daryl's gig was, which was, that was a lot of fun. You know, 90 minutes of number one hits every night. and Everybody knows to every word and every seat is sold out. And KT and I worked really good together, like on Sonics and stuff like that, like how to really 
finesse things, you know? And I really learned a lot from her because it was like how to make every song sound a bit different where just don't turn the reverb on or put the delay on the vocal, a little bit of slap and just every song should sound like that. It was feathering them and turning maybe a little bit more delay or a little bit more of a pre-delay on this song versus... And that's where I really learned to finesse things. Which is one thing I wanted to ask you. I heard you say in another interview that you prefer to mix big rather than loud. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, considering what you just said, I wonder if you could talk about some of the the ways that you you do that and some of the tools you use or just things that you've learned that help that. Well, we can all go in and just push the faders all the way up and ram as much sound through that sound system as possible. But we all know what we have to do at that point. We have to over-filter, over-EQ, really carve up things to really make it, you know, to get that volume out of it. Especially a lot of the the bands I work for are, you know, no in-ears for the most part. It's a live stage. There's no fractals. There's no barely digital keyboards at that point. You know, it's like, even with KT, where we had a loop pedal and stuff like that, there's still a tambourine on the floor with a 57 on it that she stomps on that you got to have the correct amount of reverb, pre-delay, and tone on that reverb to make it really cut through everything else you're doing. So my whole thing is, you know, I try to, I go up and listen to it. What does that acoustic really sound like? Mm -hmm. Let's make it sound like that. I mean, we could all roll the high pass up to, you know, 300 hertz and let it chug right through, but, you know, it needs to have some tone to it. But when you combine all those instruments and they're full and rich sounding and, you know, you're not over compressing them or your gain structure's good, it's not, you're not getting more hiss than than actual instrumentation. It really seems to come through well. And, and then, and on top of that, have your balance right. Like, it's great that you have a great drum sound and the drummer's got a great, you know, great pocket going, kick, snare, hat. Oh yeah, that feels great. And all of a sudden they hit a tom-tom and it's like a howitzer cannon going off. It's like, well, go stand next to the drum kit and see what it really sounds like there. Same thing with the bass guitar. The bass player might not be doing, you know, a super subby, low-endy bass thing. He might be doing a more... Robert Randolph, the bass player, was playing a six-string where the, the three low notes were playing kind of the bass line, but he's also playing a rhythm guitar part on the three high strings. So it's like, well, how do you balance that and not overpower things? So, you know, it's all listen to the source and make it sound good there and then just work on your balance, but don't hurt people because that's the whole thing is if you go in there with the, you need to be louder than the last band on a festival or or even limiting the acts that are playing before you, you're opening your support acts and all that, like, oh, don't mix louder than this. It's, it's your show, you know? Your fans are going to be the ones who complain if it's if there's a problem. But also on top of that, like getting that full, rich sounding thing to translate in a large space is also difficult in itself. I mean, we we've made the jump recently more to arenas and amphitheaters and headlining sets at festivals. And we all know that a lot of these places aren't designed for live music whatsoever. No, especially arenas. I mean, arenas are really hard, I think. Yeah, they're really hard. So, you know, you got to find that sweet spot with, okay, you know, a lot of times you you got to 
turn those high pass filters up and stuff like that and really kind of thin stuff out to make it cut. But also I feel like a lot of times it's just turn it down. Just go to go to your gas pedal and back off a little bit and see how it sits in the room a little bit more. You know, every room's kind of got a threshold of what works in it. You just, you got to find it and work with it and finesse it. That's kind of where I'm at right now, you know. Especially working at Saratoga, it was like there was a threshold to that room where if you mix under the threshold, you're going to have a great day. It sounded fantastic. Or you could go the opposite and go so far beyond the threshold that you were just overpowering the room so much that it sounded amazing. And I loved those engineers, but I mean, that's great if you're mixing Judas Priest, but Brandy Carlisle doesn't need to be a 107 A-weight at the mix position, you know? It breathes too much. Things that don't breathe work loud, yeah. work well loud, but... <laughs> So let's talk about Brandy. So how did you get that gig? And um, I mean, it feels like she's always around doing something different. Like sometimes it's Alicia Keys. Sometimes it's Watch Women. Sometimes it's her. Sometimes it's her band. Like how maybe you could just talk about what it was like when you first started with her and, and just what you've learned through working with her. It's been the best gig I've ever had in every point of view. The first thing I will say about Brandy, and I've said it a million times, Brandy is the absolute best person at taking you completely out of your comfort zone and getting the absolute best out of you. And she has the two greatest cheerleaders on either side of her pushing you to get the greatness out of you. What's some of the, an example of something she's pushed you on that you're like, I don't think we should do that. And then you do it and it worked. Oh, recording, being a recording engineer. I mean, I've got more album credits from just tracking vocals with her just because she goes, no, you can do it. You know, all of a sudden you got to get in there and comp vocals with somebody who's got a, a shelf full of Grammys. And you're like, you know that they're like, oh, she brought her live guy. <laughs> and I go everywhere with her. I mean, when she sits in with whoever, if she's going to sing one song, I'm there whether it's to ring out the wedge and, and then stand with the front of house engineer and go, hey, can you give it a little more reverb? Can you give it a little bit more low end? Lay off the compressor a little bit on her vocal. But yeah, I mean, it, that's been the whole thing. I kind of go everywhere and do everything. What a precious relationship. I mean, it's so hard to find an artist that you gel with like that, that will literally take you in the studio on their solo stuff, on their TV stuff. I helped build the studio at her house. You know, that's the oh, whole great. thing. Like I wired every patch point at the, the studio. That's beautiful. You know, and I, I can't take sole credit. Jerry Streeter, who's our monitor engineer, who's worked on the records. Funny enough, he was the chief engineer over at Bear Creek. And when he left, Randy's like, no, come do monitors. And I met him and he's like, never done monitors, never seen a digital console, never been on tour. And he's fantastic. And, and everybody around her, and she just, it's not just me, it's just everybody with her, whether it's the tour manager, the truck drivers, whoever, she just, you feel great at the end of it. You know what I mean? The way the whole, the gig came about was funny enough, uh, Joel Roman, who I mentioned, who was working with KT Tungstall, was with the booking agent. And I finished up KT and... I jumped on the Florence and the Machine tour for a little while as a PA tech crew guy. Loved it. Had a lot of fun and was helping out Rich Robinson from the Black Crows a little bit. And we had just had our son, Harrison. I said, well, I, I think I'm going to take some time off. I'll do a little bit of Robert stuff. And Joel hit me up and was like, hey, um, Brandy Carlisle is looking for a front of house engineer. And I said, oh, okay. You know, funny enough, and the day he said that they were on like the Today Show or something, I was like... 
this is good. I know the song. I know a few of the songs. I've definitely seen them on festivals. I've got a pretty good relationship with a lot of Seattle-based musicians. So I called up Mike Musburger, a really good drummer friend of mine. We did the Hendrix tour together forever. I said, hey, what do you, can you tell me about the Brandy Carlisle camp? And he's like, hang on. And he gets McCready on the phone from Pearl Jam and goes, oh my God, you're the guy. Perfect. So he called Brandy and the twins. And he's like, no, no, no. Come up to Maple Valley, Washington and sit down and hang out with us and talk. And I was like, this is new. You know, it's like I talked to a couple people on the phone, but it was like never like, let's let's have a hang. And I went up and they were like, we sat down, we had coffee, we talked, we more or less talked about music more so than audio. They said, okay, we're going to do this winter run, acoustic trio. Come hang out for like, it was like a three, two or three week run. Come and hang out for the first week, production manage a little bit. Our old engineer is going to be there. I was like, yeah, sure. So I went out and we all kind of hung and it was it was a really good hang. We had a good time. And then I got I literally got in a car in Vermont, drove back to my mom and dad's house. My wife's at home with our infant son. It's going to be the Christmas break now. Get back to my mom and dad's house that night and I get a phone call from the twins on the phone. They're like, hey, we really loved having you, man. This is going to be great. I was like, oh, cool. Any chance you could come back and finish the tour? <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, we're, Alex is going to go home, their, their old engineer who I'd love to death. And uh, we'd love you to finish and call my wife. There was a little bit of tear shed. I was like, okay, go out. And I did it. And that was it. Finished out that run, had a really good time. And then that was 2015. And it's kind of been a whirlwind ever since. Yeah, she really, you guys really exploded after that. I mean. Yeah, 17 is when they were making the record, they were making, by the way, I forgive you. That was you know, they went off to Nashville to work on that. I, I headed out on the road with Matashahu for a little bit because he was a friend of mine. When we kicked that off, it was just insane. I mean, it just was like, you know, folk Americana artists, we're going to have, got a really great career, theaters, we'll do Red Rocks, we'll do stuff like that. And all of a sudden, it just became like every award show, every TV show, playing with every everything all at once. And it's just been amazing. It's been a, a lot of fun with that whole experience, but it's everything I've done up to this point has made me the mixer I am today. And it's helped, you know, the spontaneity of Robert Randolph definitely helps with the fact is I don't clam up when she goes, Hey, uh, Alison Russell's whole band is going to sit in mid set. No sound check. No, nothing. Okay, great. Or KT Tungstall with the, the different sorts of effects and stuff like that. How do we make every song not sound like the exact same thing where it's constantly a living, breathing, dynamic thing? So, you know, that's the whole buildup. And the thing about Brandy is there's no one Randy Carlisle show. It's so dynamic and fluid with what we do. I mean, I can make the joke right now. We have Brandy Carlisle solo. We have Brandy Carlisle trio, which is Brandy, Tim, and Phil. We have Brandy Carlisle Trio with the string section. We have the Brandy Carlisle Rock Band, which is Brandy, Tim, Phil, the drummer, and the keyboard player. And then we have Brandy Carlisle with a symphony, which is a hundred and almost 200 input wow. crazy thing. So are you, is she doing runs that you have production on like a normal tour anytime soon? Or did you just pretty much do that in 2017? And for the rest of the time, it's just been a lot of one-offs that are all different every time. No, no, no. Like we go out and tour, tour. Like we have like our base, we have like one semi truck that follows us around and it's up to the point where it's enough to do everything. 
whether it's a solo show, whether it's a trio show. The symphony show, of course, we have to bring in some other stuff and like some of the really big one-off kind of things. Like when we did the Joni jam, we brought in a separate cable package to kind of augment what we had. But it's all still fits into what we carry, meaning wedge, console-wise. I mean, right now with guest inputs and effects returns, I'm somewhere around 120 available inputs for whatever version of the show we're going to do that day. That's a lot of inputs. Yeah, the bass show. I mean, you know, full percussion rig, big drum kit, string players, all the different acoustics. Everything's kind of got its own thing. But guest inputs at the same time, like I said, if it, Allison Russell's entire band could come out, the Indigo Girls could come out. The symphony stuff, normally I'll bring in another mixer. They'll mix the stems for me. So like... They'll stem it down to like eight stereo sends for me. It'll all hit me, then hit the PA that way. But also, they're a wedge band. So we have in-ears for players. Our strings wear ears. But pretty much everybody's on on wedges. You know, it's it's very kind of a traditional. I do want to talk about the Joni Mitchell Newport Folk Festival show. Oh, okay. Oh my God. I watched some of the YouTube on that and Brandy's sitting back there like trying so hard not to cry. <laughs> Everybody not to cry. Oh my God. It was so beautiful. So that gig, you got that gig, how? And tell me about it because it looked like there was just a ton of people on stage. Well, the background is, is we did Joni's 75th birthday party, which was amazing in itself. And they started to become friends. And I think that was the night she decided that she was going to cover Blue from start to finish. She was going to round up a lot of uh, the original musicians who played on the record and cover Blue, and we were going to do it at Disney Hall in LA. But during this, she and Joni became friends. And I believe, as the story goes, Joni said, hey, I got all these wonderful instruments at my house, but no one ever plays them anymore. Maybe you guys could come up and play and we'll have a good time. Well, it turned into people coming. Like some of the names I've heard, I haven't been there yet, but from the names I've heard that have sat in that room and just played, we did the two blue shows, which those were, those are some of the ones that in my list of favorite shows I've ever done. Doing it at Disney and then Carnegie Hall again, where like you look in the front row at Disney Hall and you're like, oh yeah, they're Joni and Elton and... They decided for Newport, you know, every time she kind of headlines at Newport, she wants to do something special. Beginning with, we did the, um, we called it She's an Eagle, which was the first, I believe, full-on female headlining set at Newport on Saturday. And that's the one where Judy Collins, Cheryl Crow, the high women, and then the pinnacle of the entire night was nobody knew, but we snuck Dolly Parton in. And when Brandy puts these together, it's just, you're the front of house engineer. You're my engineer. You're doing this. So that's how you, I see. I didn't realize that she was kind of the orchestrator of it all. She's the producer, the curator, and I guess I'm just part of the, the team that comes along with it. Well, the Joni Jams, they would go down once or twice a month and, and they would get together and they would do these and you just would hear the stories about amazing music, you know, and it, this thing that just happened in, in Joni's living room. So when we went to do Newport again this year, that was kind of the hush-hush, you know, that Joni's going to come out. 
nobody knew if she was going to sing or what she was going to do, but they brought in all these people who have kind of been a part of it and sat in on it and friends and, you know, but it was, it was a long weekend. So we were on tour all last summer and we've been supporting the, in the Silent Days record. So pretty much like the way I look at it is like we kind of kicked off 2021 around 4th of July and it's kind of just going still steam ahead. Yeah. We headed out to Newport. We met our truck there. We had just done tour dates for our normal show and we loaded into, there's a, an old church on the grounds in Newport and devised this whole Joni Jam set up. Because normally when it's done, it's just them sitting in the living room. Well, how do we recreate this living room in a live situation? And we kind of came up with it. And how do we fit live audio into it? And we worked on that. And we did a rehearsal for one day. We loaded in Thursday. We rehearsed on Friday. Saturday, we all had to be up at 3.30 to go to the airport to fly to Chicago to do the high women at Wrigley Field. That's not a small gig either. Oh, just throw that in. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go open for, we're going to go, we're going to go support Stapleton at Wrigley Field and then fly back and then do this Joni jam, which could turn out to be one of the biggest things ever, you know? Yeah. Rehearsals were amazing and Joni just opened her mouth and you're like, oh my God. And you, you want to talk about nervous, having your finger on a fader that you have to push up where you're like, no matter what happens, this is going to be a big deal, you know? Right. <laughs> so we loaded in at like five o'clock in the morning on Sunday. So like we flew back after the Wrigley show, got to sleep for a few hours, but had to be on site at like five o'clock in the morning to load in. And you've done Newport. It's not a big stage. There's not a lot of room, but also let's factor into this. The same kit of gear that we have is going to be used for a, I think we did six Brandy Carlisle songs with our full setup, tear it down, get it off, and then reconfigure. And I think we did it in 20 minutes to this completely different setup with guest star after guest star. I mean, let alone, not only is Joni Mitchell there, Marcus Mumford's there, Lucius is there, Winona Judd's there. I mean, it was just like one person right after another was on that stage. And you're just like, no sound check, you know, not like a proper sound check. Like, no, yeah. it's, you got to go. And right before we played, The Roots played and we played Brandy Carlisle electric. So it was, you know, a regular rock set. And then all of a sudden it's, it's, it's this, it's, it's this. And it was, it was chilling how amazing it was. There wasn't a dry eye in the place, including myself, you know. Oh my just like, God. Yeah. And so did it sound great? Did it just, because of... It was, yeah, it was amazing. Like, I, you know, I was, yeah, I was scared, you know, the, she's recovering. Yeah, from a brain injury or hemorrhage or... Brain aneurysm. And I want to say we had 15 vocal mics available on deck. And you all, everybody knows with wedges, how's this going to work in a tent? Because the stage is tent covered. Sean, you got some good karma. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, I, I, if if I was a cat, I think I got all nine lives that day. But it, yeah, it was not. I mean, just people, people were texting me, just going, "Are you doing this?" And I'm like, "Yeah," you know. And the YouTube videos sound great. I know. I mean, did you guys remix those or? No, 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 not at all. I mean, I'm talking, I'm talking just phone videos. You know, it's incredible. Oh, those. Okay, yeah. But even the ones I saw that was like professionally released, those sounded incredible. And I know that it was your mix, but I figured you might have mixed it after too because you probably tracked it all. I'm sure. Uh, right? Yeah, we the archive thing, 
for us audio engineers is becoming such a big part of our job now. Because it's so easy now. I mean, that was the one thing I loved about live audio to this day is once the show was over, it was over. And that was it. I mean, you know, if you recorded a live show, I'd say even 15 years ago, it was like it was a big to do. Expensive, whole other. Now it's just, you know, arm the tracks. Let's see what we get. Yeah. Here's a, <laughs> here's a Cat 5 cable. Let's yeah. go. But it's become such a major part of our job. But also the, the virtual sound check bit. I remember the first time seeing it, I was like, uh, well, all right, I can't live without it anymore. I was so doubtful at first. And then I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. We all know what the sound of audio can be like. Yeah, we have a lot of people now who are like, oh, you know, the old days, it was better with stuff like this, you know, analog desks and stuff. Just those shows sounded great. But a lot of shows today sound great too. You know, it's like there's room for everybody at the table, you know. Yeah. I hear shows that are analog and they're stunning. I hear shows that are digital that are stunning. I hear hybrid shows that are stunning. You got to give the music what it needs. And if it works, it works in your workflow of how you get the desired result that you and your artist or the audience and everybody's happy with, then I'm all for it. Absolutely. Which is a great, great way. I mean, from then to now to end talking about, you know, analog to digital. So... As we wrap up, is there anything that you would want to say to anyone starting right now or just something that you wish that you knew then what you know now? Never be afraid to learn every single day and just know that it's a growth process. You know, if you go in and go, just be humble about it and just you could always learn from somebody, whether it's the 23-year-old kid who just came out of Full Sail who probably knows networking more than you or I'll ever know. But at the same time, you can learn from the new dog just as much as you can learn from the old, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but it's like everybody can learn from everybody. And, you know, just always keep your head about you, you know, just be aware of your surroundings and what you're doing and you will get through it. There'll be good times. There'll be bad times. And there's a lot of bad times. And there's a lot of tough times. There's a lot of those, it's 5 a.m. and I'm at an airport and flights just keep getting canceled. You know, you'll get through it. And always remember, and this one's coming more true to me now to have time for yourself as well. Don't devote it all to what you do. You still need to be you and be a part of life at the same time. You just can't run away and get into the tour bubble and just never come back. That can take you down as well. You know, you could become the top of your game, but if there's nothing for you when the life isn't happening at that exact moment, the in-between moments, that's going to affect you worse than, than burning out from too much work. I can't agree with what you said more because when you don't have time for yourself, I find that my relationship skills, they drop so much that it affects the relationship with the artist, with everybody around me. So I think what you just said is, is so important to stay at the top of your game. Not always saying yes, not always being super tunnel vision. That's so important. So thank you so much. There's one last thing I always ask everyone, although I almost don't want to ask you because you've already given so many artists to listen to. I mean, the roster of names that you have worked with. And, and I mean, I learned so much just researching you. But is there, is there a record top to bottom that you could recommend to people that you still love or that you're listening to now, contemporary old, anything? Oh, 
All right. I got a record that I absolutely love right now. I wish I had it out here. I have it in the other room on vinyl. The big one for me for the last couple of years, and I love, I mean, I named my son after a Beatle. I'm a music fanatic. But the one right now is, it's by a band called Jellyfish. And the record's called Spilt Milk. And it's recorded by Jack Joseph Puig. It was produced by uh, Albie Gent, who did like all the big BG Saturday Night Fever. It is like a power pop, like masterpiece. Just how much stuff is going on in that record. That's one that's like a big one. You know, you, you threw me on the spot, but that's a big one. That's kind of a go-to that I listen to a lot, a lot these days, you know. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for your time and all that you've brought to so many people and concert goers and artists alike. Your impact on the industry is measurable. And thank you so much for your time and coming on Sound Girls. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we can go down the nerd tech hole anytime anybody wants. It's, it's bad, you know. But yeah, you guys do great work and keep it up. I really love everything that Sound Girl stands for. And I just remember hearing about it early on when M Michelle and Carrie were putting it together. I'm like, this is, this needed to come years ago. So thank you for all the kind words and appreciating the work that I do. Hey everyone, big news, cool news. Take advantage of what I'm about to say. El Acoustics is offering four training certification grants for the second year in a row now. And everyone knows they have great sounding rigs. They've revolutionized pro audio with their line source systems. And now it's your big chance to take advantage of our partnership. So they're giving away four certification grants so you can get credentialed on their unbelievable gear. And one of the things about El Acoustics is they've been committed to using the scientific method from the get-go to shape their innovations. So don't miss this. For more information, go to soundgirls.org and type in grant in the search bar. All the details about who's eligible are there. Looking for more audio-related podcasts? Check out our friends at the Audio Podcast Alliance. To see all of the other podcasts in the Alliance, make sure to visit audiopodcast.org. The executive producers of the Sound Girls podcast are Becky Campbell and Susan Williams. This episode was produced by me, Rebecca Wilson, and edited by Robbie Mortimer. Our theme song was written and recorded by Jess Fenton. And we send a big thank you to our sponsors, QSC, who, like Sound Girls, also wants to help empower you with the right tools, support, and service to help you create impactful connections. Find out more at soundgirls.org and qsc.com.